Okay, well, good morning, and let me start this um, lecture on painting in China in the, in the introduction to the history of art series. So, the introduction looks at a whole kind of broad range of contexts, um, and obviously this is a very large context. In a way, it's completely um, insane to attempt to talk about, uh, you know, a several thousand year tradition uh, in uh, 50 minutes. So obviously I'm not going to kind of cover the whole field. What I want to do is to sort of situate this material for you um, and talk a little bit about kind of how art history has dealt or might deal um, with this very large, with this very, very large, uh, with this very large topic. I'm going to throw a lot of images um, on the screen kind of very rapidly. Uh, obviously, the thing goes up on WebLearn afterwards, but in a way, it's not the, not the names and dates and so on that are important. I want you to try and get hold of um, a few big ideas. Um, and I want to start with a sort of um, what's a deliberately provocative idea, which is um, that this painting, uh, I would argue, is the right shape for art history, whereas this painting is the wrong shape um, for art history. Now, what I mean by that is that um, the mechanisms that art history has, the technical mechanisms that we have for um, showing and looking at images, work quite well with things that are a specific <coughs> shape, like a European painting from the 17th century. Um, and they don't work so well uh, with some of the thi with things that are this shape. So here is. Here's the whole of this painting. Right? Here's a detail from it. Zhou Chun's Beggars and Street Characters, 16th century Chinese painting. Um, but if, if I show you the whole of it, um, it, you know, it becomes a tiny little strip within the, uh, within the uh, slide, and it's very, very hard. Um, it's very hard to look at. And we might think, and I talked about this in the very first lecture um, in this series, about the relationship between the tools that we've got, and by tools I mean both kind of physical tools like projectors and classrooms, um, the relationship between the tools that we've got, physical and also intellectual tools, um, and the kinds of material that we're trying, trying to grapple with, i.e., you know, are a set of tools, one of the big questions is, are a set of tools which were designed for this, maybe, um, are they going to work? For this, or do we need a, a completely different, a completely different set of tools? Um, now, of course, there are um, other tools that have developed. I talked in the first lecture about slides and the history of slides and, and where slides come from. But of course, slides are not the only uh, the only tools we've got. And I've I've just put um, a link to this uh, University of Chicago website, um, which is a an attempt to use the modern technology of digital images to deal with um, particular formats of Chinese painting, um, because obviously one of the things that you can do on a screen is scroll. Yeah. Now, these things are called scrolls. Scrolling is something that we all do all the time. We kind of scroll up and down and we scroll from side to side. So maybe there are new technologies, the technology of the, of the computer, um, that enables us to, to look at that. So this is an attempt to kind of show Chinese paintings in a different way, and in particular to capture some of the um, 
temporality, that is the fact that you know, things might be looked at over a period of time. Another, another example um, that I would <coughs> recommend to you if you're interested, um, on, the, on the web, James Cahill, um, now retired from the University of Berkeley, where he was for many years very distinguished professor of the history of Chinese art, has kind of put down on, well not down, put down on paper, but put down on video, a series of 11 hour long lectures about the early history of Chinese painting. That's the history of Chinese painting only about as far as 1300, right, leaving out the last kind of seven, 800 years, which is what I'm mostly gonna, gonna, gonna talk about. And, you know, I'm not suggesting that anybody should sit down and watch 11 hours of, of Jim Cahill lecturing on video, Although if you want to, you know, this stuff, this stuff is there. But it might be worth having, just having a look at them to see the ways in which, because they're actually, apart from anything else, a very uh, good use of the technology of kind of moving cameras <coughs> and zooming in and out of details and so on, in a way which it's much harder for me um, to do here in the kind of, in the, in the formats that I've got. <coughs> and if I had time, I would show you some bits of the, of the, the, uh, I'd show you some bits of this uh, of this site, and I'd show you some bits of Cahill. But in order to say what I want to say within an hour, I'm not going to do that. But have a look at this um, if if you're interested. So this question of kind of you know right shape, wrong shape is just to frame the issue of you know what are the tools that we're using, both physical and intellectual. Now, if I'm going to talk about painting, uh, I'm going I'm talking um, about you know, a category which is perfectly meaningful within Chinese culture itself. Uh, and I'm going to talk later in this lecture about um, the distinction between emic concepts and etic concepts, concepts within and concepts without a culture. Um, but let me start by saying that, you know, painting, and the Chinese word is hua, um, and there's a character for it, the Chinese word hua, um, you know, this is, this is a, a category, an idea, a discourse, a topic of study, kind of within Chinese culture, and has been so for a very long time. Now, uh, it's often linked with other concepts, um, and in particular, uh, in, in China in the past, or even in Chinese language in the present, what you will often see together are two concepts um, put together uh, in the term shuhua, um, which usually get translated in English as painting and calligraphy. Painting being painting, which I'm going to talk about, and calligraphy being the art of writing with the brush and the kind of aesthetic, social, and cultural discourses around writing. Uh, one of the interesting things to notice, I think, though, is that although this is usually translated in English, almost always translated in English as painting and calligraphy, the Chinese puts it the other way around. The Chinese always says shu hua, which means calligraphy and painting. And that represents an idea that calligraphy is, if you like, the senior cultural practice, um, earlier uh, and more important, and indeed more highly valued. And while I'm talking about painting today, it's worth bearing in mind that calligraphy, the art of writing, is uh, you know is seen as the more prestigious and the more important, and it's always expressed in this in this order, shu and you get the term in parts of other compounds, tu hua, and I'm going to talk later on in this lecture about, about a fine distinction made at various points in China between the category of pictures and the category of painting. Those are not exactly seen 
diagram as the same thing. Now, in order to get some kind of a handle on it, uh, I'm not going to talk about um, everything, and I'm not going to talk about all periods. I'm going to focus in um, on uh, this period, the period of China's Ming Dynasty, uh, from 1368 to 1644. Um, that is, if you think about European history or English history, we're dealing with a chunk of time from the Black Death to the English Civil War. You know, so we're so we're dealing with that kind of what's often in Euro, Euro, what European historians would call part of the early modern period, and it's one of the kind of interesting distinctions about you know, are terms like that applicable to China at all? Um, I'll sh uh, I'll give you at the end some kind of further reading about this period, but I just wanted to draw your attention to, you know, the kind of information um, that's uh, on uh, various websites. So, for example, the um, Oxford Art Online website will have, you know, quite good material on, you know, if you look at Ming Dynasty, you're going to get a big entry, um, and you can also look up the kind of names of individual artists. Uh, and a website I'm very fond of is the Heilbrunn Timeline of Art History, um, which is valuable for all kinds of things, not just Chinese things, um, on the website of the Metropolitan Museum of Art New York. But again, they have some, some nice stuff there. So what I want to do um, is start by talking about the physicality of, of Ming painting. Um, I want to talk, and I want to do that by talking first about the different formats in which paintings exist. What, what are paintings in this period as material and physical <coughs> objects? And I'm going to talk um, about uh, them in the order that the formats of Chinese painting survive so these are all formats that existed um, in the Ming, but I'm going to start with kind of what, what we think of as possibly earlier formats and move on. All of these kind of coexisted in the Ming. Um, the first one um, to think about is wall painting. Right? The earliest paintings that survived from China in any large quantity now are, are wall paintings. Uh, they're almost all... Um, uh, well, in fact, they are all. All the ones that survive are religious. Um, they're in the context of, uh, principally in the context of uh, uh, Buddhist sites. Uh, and so I'm, sure, I'm showing you a painting that comes from, you know, the 5th century. Um, it's on a wall painting. It's at the site of Dunhuang, or the Morgao Caves um, uh, in, China, in the west of China. Um, it's probably changed colour over the years, but we have kind of large quantities of, of, of this religious uh, wall painting. We know from textual sources that there used to be large quantities of uh, secular wall painting as well, but uh, that doesn't get, that doesn't survive. You know, palaces, um, homes of the rich were decorated, the walls were decorated as well. So this is painting on plaster. The surface, the materials um, support um, for this painting is painting on plaster. <laughs> and we've got large quantities of this from an early period, from much earlier than the Ming, but it's, but it's both basically all religious. Now, um, if we come into the Ming uh, period itself, we have quite a large quantity of wall painting surviving. And I'm just showing you an example of uh, wall painting that uh, was painted in the early 16th century. Uh, on a religious site, which is a much earlier religious site. This building is um, 10th, 11th century. 
um, and, the, and you've got this wall painting. And you can see this is wall painting that is kind of in this uh, sort of entranceway or portico to this very large uh, temple building. And so it's sort of half, it's not completely exposed to the elements, but it's sort of largely exposed to the elements. And as such, it's in kind of appalling condition and you can hardly see it, right? Which, of course, is one of the problems about, uh, about wall painting and one of the reasons um, that it doesn't survive um, in very large quantities. And consequently, it kind of doesn't get written about very much. You know, if you get a book called, you know, Ming Painting, it won't mention wall painting at all. Um, that's partly because not so much survives, partly because some of what survives is in very poor condition, and also partly because what there is is entirely um, religious painting, and this is often viewed as kind of less interesting, less valuable, less important than other kinds of painting that I'm going to talk about in a moment that, that seem more kind of important. So, so there's both kind of practical factors and intellectual factors around why, you know, so that if, if somebody said I'd like to write an essay on Ming uh, uh, wall painting, I would say can't be done. You know, can't be done because there's not enough writing, you know, there's enough written about it. There's quite a lot of the material, but it's hardly been written about. It's hardly ever been pulled together systematically. But, it, but we have to just keep it in mind as a sort of, as a sort of background. So that's one format, a very early format, probably existed for a very long time before the main. Another format um, of uh, painting that exists um, in the main is the format that we call the hand scroll or the horizontal scroll. Now, you know, the, in, in Chinese, there are different words for different kinds of paintings. So there's a specific Chinese word for this, but it's usually called a hand scroll um, in English. And here I'm showing you an example of a hand scroll uh, painting by a Ming Dynasty artist. So this is a 16th century painting um, called Old Cypress. And as you can see, it's a roll of material. This one's painted on paper. Um, uh, there's a roll of material. And uh, here it's been unrolled. And, and I'm very proud of this <coughs> photograph. I, I got the Kansas City University, the Museum of Kansas City to make this photograph because I wanted a photograph for a book that showed that this thing is actually a physical object. Usually when they get reproduced in books, all you, would, all you see is that. They don't show you the frame. Well, now, Chinese paintings don't have frames in the European sense, and you've thought about frame as part of, um, as part of another course. Um, but, you know, this has a framing too. That is, it has a, you know, it has a physicality, um, and of course it has the possibility of extension there. Now, this is quite a small hand scroll um, in the sense that the pictorial surface of it, you know, when it's unrolled, it's about that size and it can be looked at as one. At once, hand scrolls don't tend to be much bigger than that. And this picture, uh, you know, gives you some sense of what they're like sort of physically. The, the actual origins of the hand scroll are probably in very early forms of Chinese text. The very earliest forms of Chinese text before paper had been invented, I mean, the Chinese invented paper, but they didn't invent it until about, you know, time of the Roman Empire, turn of the Christian era. Um, the, and before that, the for forms of writing were on uh, bamboo strips, which were then kind of bound together to make a roll. So you unrolled it and you've got a, you've got a whole text. And this is Wu Hong, professor of Chinese art um, at the University of Chicago, kind of demonstrating how you look at a, at a, at a hand scroll. 
Um, and here's me with a bunch of students looking at one of the hand scrolls um, in, the, uh, in the collection of the Bodleian, Bodleian Library. Now, you can see from the Wu Hong picture that, you know, especially if you look here, you know, there's a lot more of it than he's actually looking at. If you go to the Victoria and Albert Museum uh, Chinese painting exhibition, which I hope you all will, because fabulous exhibitions, once in a lifetime chance to see things of this quality altogether in Britain, um, the, uh, you know, you might see a hand scroll kind of completely unrolled, you know, and, and they can be vast lengths, you know, they can be very, 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 very long. Um, but uh, that's not the way they were ever looked at in China. They were never completely <coughs> unrolled. So what happens is you, you, you unroll a bit and you look at that and then you roll it up and then you unroll another bit and you look at that and then you unroll another bit and you look at that. So the thing is never a pictorial field that is looked at completely. Apart from anything else, you couldn't look at them completely. In order to see the whole thing, you know, you'd have to stand very well back. And you'll see in the museum that what people have to do is kind of walk along the case and look at it sort of bit by bit. Um, so, um, so he's, you know, he's got it in his hands. He's kind of looking at it. So we might think about the kinds of audiences for, for pictures like this. Now, obviously, there's there's a group of people here looking at, at one of these things, but. You know, how well can Rose here actually see it? You know, she probably can't see it that well. Um, it, it, this is really what this is designed for. This is quite an intimate format. Quite a small number of people are going to look at this um, at, at, any one, at any one time. It uh, doesn't mean that more than one person couldn't, but it, it's, it really, you know, the mechanics of the thing, and you either have to hold it in your hands or you have to do what I've done here, which is, you know, the thing is unrolled and then a weight um, is put on it because, of course, if you unroll it and let it go, it just goes, shoom, you know, it, it, rolls its, it rolls itself up again. Hand scrolls can be painted either on paper or on silk. Those are the two main surfaces. Silk's probably the older and earlier surface. Silk, the rearing of silkworms goes back in China way, way, way back, you know, before into the into the BC millennia, uh, whereas papers invented you know, <coughs> around about 100, you know, around about 100 AD, um, and they both have, you know, specific material properties. Paper is much more absorbent. You know, paper will absorb color, watercolor, uh, more than uh, and ink, more than more than silk will. Those are the two main surfaces. But in both cases. The actual painted surface is then backed onto paper, so that a, a, a hand scroll is a is a physically rather complicated object. Um, it's not just you know a roll of paper that's a piece of a long piece of paper that's been painted on and then rolled up. It's a piece of paper, or in fact several pieces of paper, because a big or silk, because a big one may have several sections, which are then pasted down on a sort of thicker paper, which provides the kind of support for it. And when the thing's rolled up, um, you know, it, it may well have wrappers and outsides and so on. So it has a, you know, it, it's quite a complex uh, kind of physical object. So that's the, uh, that's the hand scroll. So we've gone wall painting, hand scroll, and I want to go down to hanging scroll. Um, the hanging scroll is uh, a slightly later um, format in Chinese history probably came into being in the 5th, 6th centuries AD and they may well have their origins in 
kind of religious banners that were carried in processions. Uh, and the hanging scroll, or, or vertical scroll, as it's sometimes called, you know, is always, you know, more, more higher um, than it is wide. Now, one of the effects of this is that it fits more comfortably onto uh, a screen. You know, this is the whole painting. This is a this is a detail of a of a hand scroll. I'm showing you here. Um, but this is a hanging scroll which does fit completely onto the screen, or indeed onto the page of the book. And I think it's arguable that, that the examples that people choose in books, the history for the for writing about the history of Chinese painting, tend to go more towards hanging scrolls than hand scrolls for the simple mechanical reason that they're more easily fitable onto the onto the page. Now, um, how did people look at the hanging scroll? As its name suggests, it hangs and uh, it can be hung on a wall. But more importantly, or, or in fact, in the Ming period, uh, most of the evidence we have for people looking at them in the, in the extent of people kind of, um, there, there are lots of paintings which show people looking at paintings like this one. And you can see here that they're not looking at this painting hanging on a wall. What's happening is that a servant here has a, a bamboo stick with a small kind of metal fork in it um, and they're holding the painting up and you'll notice that the man who's looking at it and talking about it I think this gesture suggests that he's kind of making a point about it to the man in red that they're having some kind of interaction some kind of conversation about it you'll notice that he isn't just looking he's actually holding the thing as well he's actually handling it so there's an engagement with the thing, which isn't so different. You know, the hand scroll is the one that you've kind of got to hold. You don't have to hold a hanging scroll, but the evidence from the period is that people did um, uh, handle them. Uh, and, and that may well have a lot to do with, you know, if you think about the composition of the thing, right? So let's, let's look at this. If, if I, you know, if I said, where's the middle of the picture? And you thought about, if you think about drawing a diagonal right, between those two corners, you, you end up with kind of there, right? And there's not <coughs> much happening there. You know, this doesn't seem to be the thing. But if you imagine that instead of that, you're, you're holding the thing, pulling it kind of up close to you, then this area, where there's a whole lot more visual interest and a whole lot more going on, is, is, what, is what you're kind of engaging with. So we might think there about the relationship between the kinds of compositions that artists favoured and the, um, the contexts of viewing, the contexts um, of looking. The, uh, so that's the, um, so that's, you know, wall painting, uh, hand scroll, hanging scroll. Now, another format for painting in the Ming period, but one that doesn't survive um, as such, uh, is the painted screen or the screen panel. Uh, we've got some survive, um, so a number of important pre-Ming paintings. So this is a this is a 10th or 11th century painting. May have originally existed as screen panels. So what do I mean by screen panels? Well, let's look at this painting. Um, here's a late uh, 15th century painting of an imperial audience. So you've got an emperor and he's got guards and you've got officials kind of standing around talking to him. And you'll see that he's seated in front of this large wooden frame and that set into this large wooden frame, there's a landscape painting. You see these mountains here um, 
cards. You know. So there's a large painting behind it. And this is probably painted on silk, on paper, but in one of these wooden frames. Now, obviously, this is a much more <coughs> uh, permanent form of display. The hand scroll and the hanging scroll share the characteristic that when you're not looking at them, they're rolled up. And actually, they spend most of their lives rolled up because they are um, all watercolours, you know, and they fade and they're easily damaged. So there's no tradition of kind of just banging it on the wall and going away, right? The thing, even things that are put on the wall are, are changed and looked at, uh, you know, according to seasons and, and other kind of temporal constraints. But these screen panels, obviously, these things are huge and heavy. And um, it's kind of... I can't show you an example, or rather, what I could show you, but I haven't got a slide of, is one of these wooden frames, because some of these wooden frames survive from the 16th century in museums. We've got some examples of that. And then we've got very big surviving hand hanging scrolls, which probably began their life as screen panels, but they don't survive in that format. So there's no thing that nowhere in the world is there a surviving Ming screen with its Ming painting in it? What you've got is the woodwork survives and some paintings survive. And this is an example. It's a very, very big painting. It's now mounted as a <coughs> hanging scroll. It's probably, it's about, it's probably slightly larger than it's appearing on the screen here. So it's physically very large. Um, but this was probably once one of those um, wooden uh, wooden panels. So, but we can't, we can't, so we're, we're kind of intuitive, we can't see them. So we've got wall paintings, hand scrolls, hanging scrolls, screen panels, and then um, a format that is uh, conventionally called in, in English the album leaf, um, which is a small <coughs> painting which was viewed kind of mounted in a book. Now, here's a scene of Ming gentlemen looking at painting and they're looking at, at an album. These are probably <coughs> antique paintings. These are probably um, round fan paintings. Um, but again, they're, they're kind of, you know, they're looking at it sort of, uh, they're looking at it together. This is, so this is a small um, thing. Yeah, this is an album leaf um, uh, by the artist Shen Zhou, his drawings from life. So just like some of the things I've been showing you are very much bigger in reality than they appear on the screen. This is very much smaller in reality. This is about this is about this size um, in reality. It's got, you know, it's a very, very uh, small, um, it's, a, it's a very small thing. Um, here's another one. Uh, this cat, you know, comes from this same album, Drawings for Life. So this is an, whoops, so that, that's, the, that's my screen panel. That's an album leaf. This is it. Now, this is itself an album leaf. So this picture of men looking at album leaf is itself an album leaf, i.e. it's only that size. Um, that's an album leaf, that's an album leaf, that's an album leaf. So one of the things that that, I think that this comparison, that and that me, is that you can't say certain styles go with certain formats. That just doesn't work. Um, because, you know, here's a, here's, here's a, a style that is very... Uh, you know, very detailed, very meticulous, very highly coloured, um, and it's more or less the same date as this one, um, which obviously is much more sketchy. It's in monochrome ink. It doesn't have any uh, doesn't have any of that kind of detail. 
and I have actually got a slide, you know, there's the two, there's the two kind of things together. So same format, very different style. Um, so what you can't see is certain styles are always, you know, go with certain formats. There are a range of styles in the main period and almost all of the formats can be used for almost all of the styles. The number of variables is, is quite complicated. And then there's one last format of painting um, that I want to show you, and that's the only format of painting that I'm talking about that was new in the main period. So all of these formats existed in the main period, <coughs> but they had been developed earlier, you know, at different periods in the past, but, um, but all developed earlier. The only real novelty um, is the fan painting in the sense of the, the folding fan painting. Now, obviously, this is just the painted surface. Again, obviously, this is blown up huge compared to how the thing is. It has the sticks that make it into a folding fan. Men and women both carried fans um, in, in Ming China. They're a kind of essential part of, of kind of being, being dressed. And we might want to think then about kind of the viewers for that format, because this is a very small scale, in, almost an intimate format. You know, it's something that you carry with you. Again, it's something that is not permanently visible because a fan, you know, fans are opened and closed, so it's not there all the time. Um, and so we might want to think about, you know, the kinds of audience for that. Obviously, you know, if you open it, people who are with you will see it, but it's different from the kinds of concentrated looking where you've got a party of gentlemen looking at things. Now, I just want to talk a little bit more about kind of looking at things because here's a, here's a set of paintings, again from about 1500, um, which show four activities that are particularly associated in the Ming period with, um, with the gentleman. These are the, these are the kind of leisure pursuits that uh, a kind of a gentleman of leisure and elegance and style is supposed to be into. These are the four things he's supposed to be into. And they are called in Chinese, which means zither, chess, calligraphy, painting. So um, the first one is um, playing the zither. This is a kind of musical instrument called a chin that gentlemen um, in particular played. Um, qi, uh, the Chinese is Wei Qi. We often call it in English by the Japanese name Go. It's a, it's a game of strategy played with lots of black and white counters. And here are a group of gentlemen kind of playing, playing the game. And then calligraphy. And uh, here's our gentleman kind of this, this blank sheet of paper. And this gentleman has a brush, and he's kind of he's uh, writing on it. Um, uh, and then uh, painting. Now, there's something distinctive about painting here, isn't there? If we look at zither, chess, and calligraphy, <coughs> what we see is the gentleman doing the activity, playing, playing chess, doing the calligraphy. These gentlemen aren't painting, they're looking at painting, aren't they? They're, in, they're engaged in acts of connoisseurship, they're looking at painting. And I think significantly, because th so this is how the thing is kind of conceptualized, that they're looking at painting together. This is a social activity, it's not a solitary activity, um, it's a bunch of gentlemen um, looking at painting, uh, looking at painting together. And we can see a whole range of the formats. There's a, there's a blowing up a kind of uh, 
a detail of it there. So we've actually got a range of formats. We've got screen panel behind him, great big screen panel. There's a titchy small screen panel. We've got hanging scroll um, that he's looking at. Um, and we've got hand scrolls, more hanging scrolls and albums. How do I know these are hand scrolls and not hanging scrolls but when they're rolled up? The answer is that hanging scrolls have these protruding roller ends, um, whereas hand scrolls don't, which is how you can tell when a, when a scroll is not is still rolled up, you can tell what kind of a, which of the formats <coughs> it, it, it's in. So this is a painting of gentlemen looking at painting, which itself shows all the possible, or almost all, not exactly all, but almost all the, the possible formats of painting. But I think the important point about it is that conceptually, discursively, painting, this is a picture of, the theme of this painting is painting, and the way that you paint a painting of painting is not to show somebody doing it, but to show gentlemen looking at it. So conceptually, the act of looking is very important to, um, to the kind of the idea, the, the, the whole experience. Now, in the time left to me, I just want to think about some of the kind of um, ways or, or materials that we have for thinking about this kind of wider topic of, of what painting is. Um, one of the things that we have to take on board is that as well as a very large number of paintings from China's past, we also have a very large amount of writing from China's past about the theme of painting. Biographies of artists, theoretical writings, there's a huge body of painting, uh, of writing about painting. And actually, we've got writing about painting from earlier than we've got actual paintings. So some of the kind of most important theoretical writing about painting comes down to us from a period um, earlier than any uh, painting that we've got. So just for example, um, you know, one of the most important kind of statements about what makes a painting good um, comes from the writing of this man, Sierra, who lives in the 6th century um, AD. Um, and he says, in order to be good, um, a painter has to be good at uh, six things. You know, and these are the six things which the painter all has to be has to be good at. Now we don't have any paint. This is too early for us. That we don't have any painting from this early date, with the exception of Buddhist wall painting from um, from cave temples. So we kind of don't really know how this related to the painting of the day. But what we do know is that. In subsequent centuries, this uh, this is a much um, repeated, a much discussed, a much argued over statement, and it shifts its <coughs> meaning subtly over the centuries. So, for example, Sierra starts by saying, you know, an artist's got to be good at all of these six things. Right? What then happens is that people start to say, well, this is a hierarchy. Right, there are six things, but this is the most important one, and this is the least important one. And then we move to a stage where people actually say, well, this is a good thing and this is a bad thing. What makes painting good is its kind of capturing of the inner spirit of things, and capturing the outer appearance of things, that's actually a bad thing. Now, he doesn't say this at the beginning, but that, so what you've got here, rather as with Europe where, you know, I don't know, Plato's theory of ideal forms gets chewed over again and again and again and again, and people kind of change their minds about what it means. 
or use it in different ways. This kind of theoretical writing, and that's just one example. Um, one has to be aware that there is this kind of great body of theory, lots of which is translated into English, by the way. You know, it's possible to read now a very large amount of, of material written by Chinese writers of the past about the art of painting without ever having to read um, a word written um, in Chinese. There's a lot of, there's a lot of translation. Um, another thing that people kind of talk about a lot is the relationship between uh, painting and calligraphy. That's a big kind of theoretical issue. Um, here's a 14th century writer telling us that writing and painting essentially are different, but have a, have a, common, have a common origin. And certainly, um, it's the case that the same material tools are used, the same kinds of brushes are used for both writing and painting. Um, and of course, many paintings have um, inscriptions, uh, have inscriptions uh, on them. The idea that uh, also about the connection between poetry and painting, there is one basic rule in poetry and painting, natural genius <coughs> and originality links together uh, those, um, cultural, uh, those cultural practices. Um, and so you've got paintings that have kind of inscriptions on them, writing. Paintings also have seals of ownership, which of course are a form of writing, uh, which may be put on at the time by the artist, but may also be put on um, by, subsequent, by subsequent owners. Um, uh, and then, uh, you know, the so the relationship with calligraphy is very close. And in a work like this by Shen <coughs> Zhou, you know, it's kind of hard to say, is this a piece of writing with a picture attached, or is it a picture with a piece of writing attached? Or actually, I think the right answer is that, that these are. This is a thing where the writing and the picture are kind of essentially working together. And in fact, you can't understand what's going on in one, um, what, what's going on in one um, without the other. Now, I said I would talk about this. I just want to. I just want to mention a distinction that I find a helpful distinction in thinking about this. Um, and this is a distinction drawn from the realm of anthropology, as anthropologists invented these terms, emic and etic. Pertaining to the view from, emic means pertaining to the view from within, developed within the mind of an individual or culture, meanings developed in terms of native categories. Not happy about that phrasing, but let it stand. With etic <coughs> describing the view of a culture from the perspective of those outside it based on cross-cultural generalizations compared with emic. So these, these work together. So emic, emic explanations are the explanations and the meanings that a culture itself produces, right? So, you know, why is this person behaving this way? You know, they are possessed by an evil spirit, right? Might be an emic explanation from 15, you know, they're possessed by the devil is the kind of thing that people might say in 15th century England. Today we might say this person is mentally unwell, right? That's an etic. That those are. I mean, obviously we have our emic explanations. Now these are not hierarchy. Neither of these is better than the other. It's just a good idea to be kind of clear about what it is, what, what kind of explanations uh, what one's using. So when one says things like you know, calligraphy and painting are, you know, have a common origin. That's a kind of emic statement. I, it's the kind of thing that people themselves said um, in in the Ming Dynasty. Um, but etic ones are ones that we might use. We might use now. Now, develop within an individual culture would also mean like you know, I mean, because 
modern Chinese people are not Ming Chinese people, so you know they might use modern uh, distinctions. Um, and it's just a helpful way of keeping kind of straight what's in one's mind. So I just want to finish by looking at some of the, I've shown you a couple of the kind of emic uh, things, you know, theories that existed within China at the period that I'm talking about, the issues around the relationship to calligraphy or the relationship to poetry. But I'd like to finish by talking about some kind of etic ways of looking at Chinese painting that, that art history has has at its disposal and that are used now. Um, one of them is uh, what you might call technical art history. That is, let's study the thing as a, as a material object. Actually, there hasn't been very much of this. Um, the best book on the Chinese painting as a thing, you know, as a, uh, how is it put together, what kind of glue is used, how are pigments made, what kind of pigments do they use? These kind of, you know, the best book in English, you know, books in Chinese, of course, but the best book in English is still Robert Van Hulip's Chinese Pictorial Art is Viewed by the Connoisseur, which was written quite a long time ago now. Um, there, this, is, this picture comes off a website um, from the National Palace Museum in Taipei <coughs> um, and is a rather good kind of illustration of the different sort of formats of painting. Really, the only time that technical art history gets applied to Chinese painting, and this is not completely unique to Chinese painting, is when <coughs> issues of um, authenticity um, are at stake. Uh, so here's a painting in the Metropolitan Museum of Art New York, which they acquired um, at the beginning of the law, at the very, very end of the last century, um, and they attributed to an important 10th century artist called Dong Yuan. James Cahill, who I've the man with the 11 hours of lectures on the on the web said no it's a modern fake not at all it's a modern fake <coughs> so there's a big row about this and big kind of you know there had to be a whole conference and whole kind of debates and so on and and one of the things that they did as part of this was kind of investigate the thing physically so that's why I'm able to show you this is this is this is a painting on silk so this is the actual silk surface which as you can see is you know it's it is in not such great shape, you know, it's, there's a lot of holes in it and so on. Here it is, as you would see it in the Met, mounted, remounted again on paper, and with the missing patches kind of touched in in order to, you know, in order to make the thing viewable. But that's, that's the physical surface that actually survives. But that's, that, this is a rare case, this kind of investigation. I can't show you lots of pictures of what lots of things look like when they're off the mountings. This is, this is a, a, you know, a slightly kind of unique thing. Then we might talk about, you know, one of art history's kind of big clubs, and that's, that's the approach through kind of iconography. You know, what does this picture mean? Well, obviously, kind of iconography is going to be um, culturally specific. So, uh, you know, unless you know uh, that uh, uh, this it, the images of kind of fish leaping upstream are uh, images that relate to wishes for success in the imperial examination system, you became an official, you know, so it's this kind of sense of, oh, huge effort, you know, this is like, never mind prelims, this is like finals, you know, huge leap, ta-da! And I turn into a dragon, or you know, I turn, I turn into an official, right? If you don't know that, it's just a picture of a fish. 
right? So iconography always has to be, you know, always has to be kind of culturally specific. And, you know, something like this one, which we looked at before, again, is probably um, a specific historical story about <coughs> the duty of the righteous ruler to listen to criticism from his officials and the duty of the righteous uh, official to offer criticism to the to the righteous ruler. So you know, there's a specific there's a specific kind of iconography going here, which you can't work out if you don't know it. You know, you you, you can't work these kind of things out. Um, you know, similarly, uh, you know, if you don't know who the bottle go or the bottle is, you're not going to get a great deal of a handle on on what's going on in a picture in a picture like this. And iconography might not seem obvious, but that doesn't mean that there isn't any. Um, so if we take something like this, um, a kind of very, very famous um, uh, 11th century uh, Chinese painting, you know, it, what is it? It's a landscape, you know, it's mountains, <coughs> it's early spring. However, um, the people who've worked particularly on this argue that these, the, here the kind of composition is iconography. Now these are paintings which were produced in the environment of the imperial court, um, and that, if you like, and I mean this is this is the composition of this is very strongly dominated by a central mountain. It's a very kind of central composition, isn't it? And that 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 is related to ideas about the centrality of the emperor. You know that the that this is this is a particular kind of imperial court art which is about you know the ways in which emperors are at are at the middle of things. So there can be iconography there, um, even when we even when we kind of don't know about it. Pictures, uh, you know, I can so pictures have a range of functions in in China, and often we need to know the iconography to know about this. They can record things like this occasion when uh, you know um, cranes are appearing in front of the uh, uh, above the imperial palace or kind of miraculous things appearing in the sky above a Buddhist temple, or, you know, the way that emperors like to have fun. These are all kind of recordings, or a particular trip <coughs> that, uh, uh, that uh, this man, Wang Lu, made a pilgrimage to a, to a holy mountain, or even just scenes of what the, what the imperial capital um, of Beijing, uh, Beijing looks like. Now, I said I was going to talk about um, this uh, distinction. Uh, tu Hua um, is a common compound made up of Tu, a picture, and Hua, uh, a painting. In the 17th century, um, this man called Gong Xian said this, in ancient times, there were pictures but no paintings. Pictures depict objects, portray people, or transcribe events. As for paintings, the same isn't necessarily true for them. To insist on some specific subject or the representation of some event is very low class. And what he's meaning by that, and here's the kind of distinction that might have been made in the Ming Dynasty, is that this is a painting, but this is just a picture. Right? And this is partly about the social status of the artist, in that this is a gentleman, an educated gentleman, an amateur painter, an educated amateur gentleman painter, and this is a this is an artisan. But it's also about the particular kind of style um, of the thing. Um, here, you know, this is about. If we go back to Gong Xian, you know, um, 
one uses a good brush and executes it. Uh, um, as for the things in a painting, cloudy hills and misty groves, precipitous boulders, there may be figures or no figures, to insist on some specific subject. I, this painting is not about a meticulous transcription of what the, the sacred mountain looks like, whereas this is very invested in the details of what people are wearing and what the streets look like and all the details of things for sale in the, in the city streets. So, in a sense, in 17th century terms, this is a painting, but this is just a picture. And that's a hierarchical distinction between them. So, lots of the things that survive nowadays were not thought of as painting at the time. Here's an anonymous, um, uh, again, religious painting um, uh, from the 15th century. Or here's the kind of... Uh, um, uh, ritual portraits. These were used in in um, uh, funerary rites. You know, after people after people had died. Um, very meticulous transcription of you know what her earrings look like and what her headcloth looks like and so on. So and again, this is a this is a picture and not a painting. Now that doesn't mean that paintings uh, weren't uh, pictures weren't important, but it means that they had certain specific functions. And that they're somewhat lower than the um, than the, the the category of painting. Um, just chuck this one in, really, to make the point about the category of of. Uh, I mean, again, this is a picture. It's anonymous. It's a picture that's actually made out of writing, so it's made out of the the characters um, of a religious text. But what these gentlemen are doing is not. This is not <coughs> pictures. This is, this is painting. And that's a category that has a, a kind of social um, uh, role as well. And one of the things that art history has done more recently um, is turn, and this is again a, a broader art historical thing, but, but the study of Chinese painting is, is part of this broader trend, is a pay a bit more attention to what, we, what you might call reception. That is, not think quite so much on not think only about what artists do, but also think about what audiences see. And to think about the social construction of audiences and what kind of person you know, is looking in what kind of context. And that directs our attention towards images like this, but also back towards this set and think, well, you know, what's, go what's going on here? So the, the thing on reception, that's a, that's a relatively new uh, kind of uh, uh, trend within art history and that's that's a kind of etic approach i think because you know this is not this was the issue that people kind of engaged with at the time but it's one that seems more productive for art history today